Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, January 29, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Edna Green Medford, Eric Foner, and Harold Holzer discuss the history of Civil War memorials in America and the role they play today. Good evening, everyone. It's lovely to be back at the Historical Society discussing this issue. We last discussed it here a few months ago, maybe last April, so it's about 10 months ago. And more seismic changes have occurred in this whole issue of memorials, who created them, who's responsible for for them, what they tell us about ourselves, whether they are alterable. Much has changed even in these last 10 months, so we thought that we had the final word, but we didn't. Um, To set the stage, let's remember that this re-examination that we're still undergoing began, I guess, with a frightening and deadly so-called Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville a couple of years ago almost, which attracted an unspeakable army of bigots and in turn unleashed a national uproar, not to mention a tragic death. And it focused um, our attention on the idols uh, and the memorials that exist in the South, but also elsewhere, um, and what they meant at the time they were unveiled and what they and commissioned and what they mean and should mean now. And we began last year discussing what cities and states have done. So I want to begin, before I turn to my colleagues and stop talking so much, with a, a little slideshow. I guess we don't call it a slideshow anymore. Very old tech. A PowerPoint presentation. Um, <laughs> about the whole issue of um, uh, statues, sculptures, public memorials, iconoclasm, whatever you want to call it. So this is not a new phenomenon. <laughs> it goes back at least to Charlton Heston, maybe, <laughs> maybe to Moses. Um, I couldn't get a good shot of the golden calf being thrown down, so we'll have to settle for his holding the Ten Commandments. Um, But in my own time at the Metropolitan Museum, I remember the outcry when the Bamiyan Buddhas were destroyed by the Taliban. They're now being rebuilt um, as sort of a theme park, but they're replicas. Um, So who is in control of memory? Who's in control of sculpture? A question then. And of course, we have our own history in New York. Um, This is a scene at Bowling Green uh, the day after the Declaration of Independence was first read aloud to New York. Uh, New Yorkers responded very excitedly by pulling down the lead statue of King George. 
and uh, smashing it. There's a piece of it outside, a surviving piece, which you should glance at before you leave here tonight. The rest of it was smashed and melted and made into bullets to fight the British. So we've done it here in New York. Um, When Abraham Lincoln moved into the White House, a statue of Thomas Jefferson dominated the lawn. It's now in Statuary Hall. Uh, This bizarre statue of George Washington (laughs) stood in view of every president at his inaugural until Ronald Reagan moved it to the other side of the Capitol. But by that time, this statue, which was known as Georgie in his bath, (laughs) was moved to the Smithsonian, where it resides now. By the way, one of the problems about relocating statues to museums is that if they're not up high on a pedestal for which height and perspective they were sculpted, they look really (laughs) odd at eye level. Who is this? Oh, um, this is the statue that California uh, gave to uh, Statuary Hall in the Capitol some years ago, Um, one of the founders of the state. And for those who say you can't move anything in Statuary Hall, even Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, California did. They put Ronald Reagan up there and moved the other guy. Each state gets two, as you may know. Um, Stalin's death meant a mass removal of Stalin statues. Uh, John Wilkes Booth was present at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield, Illinois, uh, until someone decided that an assassin should not be there, and he was removed. And, of course, Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville, which provoked this. And that's the Unite the Right um, neo-Nazi torch-bearing demonstration. This is a statue whose dedication I spoke at years ago in Richmond. It's an innocuous statue meant to invite tourists to sit on the bench and have a photograph taken with Abraham Lincoln and his son, who visited Richmond on April 4, 1865. As we sat there, these folks unveiled this demonstration. Um, An airplane flew by, sang Six Semper Tyrannus, thus ever to tyrants, the the motto that John Wilkes Booth shouted when he killed Lincoln. Jeb Stewart and Jefferson Davis in Richmond, contested memorials to be sure. How did Richmond react? Um, They built another monument in the series of monuments along their famous avenue. They built Arthur Ashe. Not a great statue, but a statement. Uh, and of course, now we've, we've been through the removal of statues in New Orleans. Here's Robert E. Lee being removed. Another New Orleans removal. Roger B. Tawney, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, being removed from Annapolis. Keep this one in mind because I want to talk about this one later. Another removal. And more recently, Charlottesville generic Confederate soldier being dragged down. That was its dedication. Interesting contrast. And what is this called? Silent Silent Sam. Silent Sam from UNC there for years and 
removed by students most recently, as you know. And the, its removal and then the removal of the base provoked the resignation of the chancellor of UNC. This is a, we hear a lot about removing Confederate memorials to cemeteries. Well, this is a commentary at a cemetery. So, and then to talk about how we deal with memory, this is a statue that stands in Washington, D.C., Edna's town, um, uh, unveiled by Ulysses Grant, dedicatory address by Frederick Douglass. All the funds were raised by African Americans, pennies and nickels and dimes at a time, and yet the image is offensive to many people, whether it's a rising enslaved person or a kneeling enslaved person, the idea of a half-naked man being elevated by the great emancipator is just one version of history. So that's, now you have to look at us because that's my (laughs) slideshow. Um, Eric, you've, as you reminded us backstage, you've been dealing with this issue for 20 years. Well, I've found, I I brought along a historical artifact. I'm not going to read it, but it's an op-ed piece. I forgot about this completely. This is from 1997, an op-ed I published in the New York Times about the Confederate memorials. And so this debate didn't start yesterday. It didn't start in Charlottesville. What I said in here, I still actually adhere to, which is at least one element of it, which is that one of the big problems we face is that the... Um, the statuary or the public presentation of history through monuments in the South is completely one-sided. I I think some statues should be taken down. They're beyond the realm of what, what is acceptable. But I'm more interested in putting up new ones and other ones. There are many, many people who are part of Southern history and American history who don't have any such statue. There were the black soldiers who fought in the Civil War. Most of them were Southerners. How come there's no statues of them in the South? The black uh, legislators of Reconstruction, the congressmen. As far as I know, there's one little statue of Robert Smalls in Buford, and that's it for the 16 African-American men who served in the Senate and the House during Reconstruction. Um, And you could go on to others, but why are there no statues of them and there's all these statues of Confederate leaders? Well, of course, you can explain very easily why, you know, given the long history of racism, of Jim Crow, of segregation. My point, and then I will stop, is simply that statues are a reflection of power. Who has the power to shape the public representation of history? And as the power shifts, sometimes the statues shift also. But um, there's nothing unusual, wrong, or surprising about that. Edna, take us back, if you would, to the different periods that um, inspired or uh, emboldened people to erect memorials to Confederate heroes in the South and ultimately in other places as well. Well, we would have thought that most of these memorials were erected right after the Civil War uh, to commemorate the sacrifice uh, of Southern men. But they were not. Most of them were actually uh, erected in the 1890s. The the greatest period was between 1900 and 1920, but roughly 1890s to uh, the 1930s was the first phase. 
And the second was uh, the 1950s and 1960s. And there's an interesting connection there in terms of the history because the 1890s through the 1950s actually was a period of Jim Crow. And so as these laws are being passed to keep African-Americans subjugated, to keep them as second-class citizens, you have these monuments to uh, the Confederacy being erected. The second uh, period was in the 1950s, 1960s, during the Civil Rights Movement. So they were a backlash to that movement. So if it really was about Southern heritage or Southern pride, it wouldn't have been necessary to put them up at that time. They would have, most of them would have been erected right after uh, the Civil War. And as Eric said, they would have been erected to African-Americans as well. You know, so the idea that they're erected to men who fought in the war to preserve a culture, to preserve a society that was based on the enslavement of African-Americans, that's something we really cannot forget or should not forget. Right. Um, so New York is not immune to this movement. I mean, we should all understand that um, aside from, well, we had a mayoral commission, as some of you may remember, that uh, evaluated a whole bunch of statues, uh, including the Columbus statue, which I think once that began uh, to fall into the discussion, it doomed the work of the commission because it was just too political. And um, we still have a lot of ethnic politics playing out in New York City. And uh, it included the statue just up the block Mm -hmm. of uh, Franklin Roosevelt. uh, Sorry, Theodore Theodore Roosevelt. uh, (laughs) Astride a horse with an African-American and a Native American striding alongside um, in sort of a subjugated manner. But also we had a a Robert E. Lee statue at the Hall of Fame, which Governor Cuomo just had removed without any discussion. (laughs) And... um, Dr. Beverly Sims. Do you, do you know about that one? Dr. Sims, yeah. That was over <clears throat> on Fifth Avenue, around 100th Street, yeah. something like that. Uh, he was a physician uh, before the Civil War who, uh, on the one hand, is credited with um, doing a lot of work which is important to modern gynecology. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, this work was done on slave women, his experiments, his uh, studies of them, and without, without anesthesia or anything like that, and certainly without consent on their part. Um, and so he's considered a person who violated medical ethics uh, in you know, very powerful ways uh, on slave women. That was removed to the cemetery yeah. where he's buried, right? He was the one, his was the one statue who was... Yeah, I thought that that commission commission, uh, basically uh, punted in the sense they they took the low-hanging fruit, which was Sims. Columbus is not coming down, so I'm not, you know, I don't believe in fighting lost causes. (laughs) I'm not, you know, and... uh, and my wife is Italian-American, so I don't want to get involved. <laughs> I don't want to get involved with Columbus. But the one over here in front of the Museum of Natural History, I think, should be subject to a lot of scrutiny and possibly uh, amending in some ways. It, uh, to me, it is an offensive statue. And, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of uh, people, school children, others pass by it. I'm sure most of them don't look that carefully at it, but it does convey a message about civilization and lack of civilization. And that's not a message that I think is um, appropriate for the current time, you know. And, and of course, it, I mean, it would have been easy to depict 
T.R. for the reasons that that statue was put there. His, his role as an environmentalist, as a naturalist, even as a hunter, but obviously it's, it's more. But, you know, not to belabor this point, the Museum of... Nat- I hate to say this, we're just next door to them. The Museum of Natural History has never faced up to its own history of, for example, being involved in eugenics very deeply. And the, the World Eugenics Conference in the 1920s was held at the Museum of Natural History. And they have never faced up to their role in spreading these extremely pernicious yeah. ideas. And just I'm, this is on my mind because I'm revising my U.S. history textbook and I wanted to include a picture from an exhibit of pygmies that they had in the 1920s juxtaposed with next to animals. In other words, that this is not, those people are not really part of civilization. They won't let me use the picture. It's a historical artifact from 100 years ago. They will not let me use it because they think it shows the Museum of Natural History in an unfavorable light, which it does. <laughs> but they could, you know, it's 100 years. They should say, well, we've moved beyond that. But no, no, they're petrified. So they're not going to go after that statue either. Right. Is, is there a way... Um, I'll ask both of you this question. So here we have a, a, a Roosevelt statue that's not going to move and a Columbus statue that's not going to move, even though it's on a plinth that's so high, nobody really <laughs> nobody focuses on it in Columbus Circle. But So that brings us to what we thought when we first discussed this 10 months ago was a path, which was adding context and interpretation. Is that still a possibility or has this gotten a little too heated everywhere. I'm not so sure that that is the answer, because the problem is I think we're missing the point of these memorials. They exist because they allow people to interpret history the way they want to. So we can put all the context that we wish, but if you've got a group of people who decided that they won the war, that they may have lost, but it was an honorable cause. And so in that sense, they won the war and they're able to spin the history they want to. It's not going to matter if we have a plaque next to the memorial explaining exactly what this is all about. I don't know that the solution is to remove those memorials either. I mean, maybe put them in a museum uh, where people will have a little bit more time to really think about them. And, you know, you can do the exhibits and really go into greater detail than you can in a little plaque. But I don't know that there is a solution at the moment. I think that as this debate heats up, we're getting more and more divided. And I don't think that that's going to be switched or it's going to be resolved just because we put up a little bit more history about it. I, I think it's a mistake not to, you know, to throw all these statues into the same category. I sure. mean, to me, Columbus is a different question than Robert E. Lee or, let us say, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who's far worse to my mind. Than, but there are plenty of statues of him all over the South. Or the one they removed in uh, New Orleans of the Battle of Liberty, Liberty Place. Place. I mean, this yeah. was a monument to a basically to the Klan, or they call themselves the White League, in Louisiana, which had a, an attempted coup d'etat to overthrow the elected biracial government of Louisiana during Reconstruction. And on the monument, it said, you know, this is a tribute to the White League who tried to give us back our state. 
us. Who is the us? Right, it's right, not right. the black population, which is a significant part of Louisiana. So, you know, that is patently offensive and should have been removed. But I don't, I'm not saying every single statue of everything is, should be removed, but there are some that are just utterly racist and ought to be put, you know, put somewhere else, not in a public square where they are, in a sense, you know, open to everybody in the society to, to, imbu- to take in their message. And when Mayor Landro began his campaign of removal, mm-hmm. started with Liberty Place and then Jefferson Davis and uh, Robert E. Lee in New Orleans, he made a really good point, and he's written a book about it since, that when you put a statue in a cemetery, you can possibly make an argument that there is a memorialization to consider. But if you put it in front of the courthouse, you're telling people of color, this is the rule of law under which you live, you know, separate and unequal. And that, that, I'm just looking at a stat I have here on my card, and Edna was talking about when these Confederate memorials were built, 50 have gone up since 1990. Two of them in Iowa, a famous Confederate stronghold. Was Iowa part of the Confederacy? No. Not that I heard of. <laughs> Quite the opposite. And 60% of those have gone up on public land, but sponsored by mm-hmm. groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which still exists. Edna, I know you, you and I have spoken about this before, but what role did women play in the memorial movement. Mm-hmm. Women were women actually took the lead. Uh, Southern women uh, may not have fought in the war, but they certainly did a lot to promote the Southern cause during the war and after the war. So they were in large measure responsible for the whole idea of promoting um, the myth of the lost cause. And women like who were members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy were central in that. They raised funds uh, for these memorials. They actually sued uh, to uh, make certain that some of these memorials were not removed. I think they sued Vanderbilt a few years back because they wanted to take, uh, the university wanted to take the name Confederate uh, out of their Confederate Memorial Hall. And because the United Daughters of the Confederacy had contributed $50,000 to the university for that hall in 1935 when the university attempted to remove the name. Then uh, the United Daughters of the Confederacy sued them and actually uh, were able to recover $1.2 or $1.3 million, which is what uh, $50,000 uh, from 1935 <laughs> would be uh, worth to value at today. But they were the ones responsible for getting these highway markers, for getting highways named after Confederate heroes. They did a lot to perpetuate this myth. And so one wonders why, why women are involved in this. Well, if you look at why the war is fought in the first place, the idea is to um, retain this Southern heritage or the Southern society. And white womanhood was at the center of that. And so absolutely white women in the South supported that idea of going to war. And then just because they lost didn't mean that uh, they weren't quite willing to honor these men who they felt had sacrificed for the cause. So on a related, uh, by the way, um, Brooklyn has a Robert E. Lee Mm -hmm. Avenue as well. 
leading to the fort. Um, it's not. It's in the fort. It's not in Brooklyn. But it, it, it includes the bridge to Brooklyn. But it's yeah. I don't think there's any marker except on military ground saying this well, is. Well, there Robert was a e. Robert E. Lee house on the Brooklyn side, right? And a Robert E. Lee tree. That we, <laughs> ah, the Robert E. Lee tree. Remember, we took down the tree. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that it wasn't the Robert E. Lee tree. <laughs> it was the one after the Robert E. Lee tree. <laughs> so one of my favorite observers of the scene, Gail Collins of the New York Times, suggested a few months ago, or maybe six months ago, that we should judge um, the figures on horseback and on pedestals by their main point. And she said that when some of the concern was extended to Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. I mean, how do we deal with the imperfect national founders in this? That's what President Trump said, right? He said, once you start this, you're going to get rid of uh, George Washington. You you can quote President Trump. I'm quoting Gail Collins. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not trying to put you in the same boat as President (laughs) But is that... um, a way of doing the measurement? I'd like to... What about, I mean, what you know, you there, there is no easy answer to this. Every uh, Everybody, I think, has a line in their mind of who's over the line and who isn't. I mean, yeah, she has a very good point. Jefferson was a slave owner. We know that. Jefferson fathered children by one of his slaves. We know that. But on the other hand, Jefferson is memorialized for many other reasons, uh, which have nothing to do with... His his slave owning, and you have to look at the whole the whole. Per- what is it we mostly remember about Jefferson? Why is Jefferson put up there as a figure to emulate, that you know, or to inspire patriotism or something? Um, to my mind, you know, as I said, Nathan Bedford Forrest is over the line, right. founder of the Ku Klux Klan, massacre leader of troops who massacred black soldiers after they surrendered, slave trader. But there are far more statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest, let's say, in Tennessee, where he was from, than of Andrew Jackson, who came out of Tennessee. You know, so he's been exalted as a, you know, the heroic figure. And to my mind, there should not be statues to Nathan Bedford Forrest. So what, what is, I, I think Collins has a good point. What, what, what are the main qualities of the person that are being Memorialized, But the real point, I think, is what Edna said before. These statues tell us a lot more about the moment they were put up than about the history that they are commemorating. Right. Why did they put up a statue in 1910? It's to send a message about the society of 1910 as much as to say, oh, there was the lost cause of the Confederacy. Why did they put up you know, the Confederate, start flying Confederate flags in the 1950s? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A message to the civil rights movement mm-hmm. about who's in charge. So that's another, that's, a, it's, what is the point of the statue as well as the, what is the point of the person being commemorated? And as much as, as the promotion of white supremacy is at the center of this, we should not forget that the men who fought on the side of the Confederacy fought against the nation. I think we have a difficult time accepting that. Uh, it's there. We cannot forget that. It is a part of the history of this country. <coughs> they waged war against the nation. Thomas Jefferson, as 
problematic as he is, and George Washington as problematic as he is, neither of them fought <laughs> against their country. Mm-hmm. And to actually raise these memorials to men who fought against the country and say these were heroes, perhaps heroes to a small group of people, but not heroes to everyone in those communities. The idea that you're putting these monuments on public property and taxing people to keep these things going, you know, why should I have to pay for that? If you want to have it on private space, that's fine. That's your business. Uh, When I'm driving south on Interstate 95 between Washington and Richmond, I have to pass by this huge flag of the Confederacy that's waving over somebody's property. It bothers me to no end. But guess what? That's their property. And they can do that. But if I had to pay to keep that memorial to the Confederacy, to white supremacy going, I would be really agitated by that. (laughs) Let me let me ask about the works from another point, another perspective completely. Should, and this is of course a subjective judgment completely, but should quality as works of art have an impact on the decisions we make in the future? So Silent Sam, which was at UNC, was a boilerplate um, yeah. product that, that well, which were churned out and sent to anybody who wanted a sentinel, a Confederate sentinel to adorn their Some of these uh, companies made basically the same figure for Union yeah. or exactly. Confederate statues yeah. with a different head on it. Right. right. Um, they don't have much aesthetic value. They don't. But a case could be made for the Robert E. Lee statue in the Fan District in Richmond, which is offensive, as is the Arch of Titus in Rome, offensive to Jews because it shows pillaging of the temple in Jerusalem, but it's a great work of antiquity and people don't agitate for it to be removed. Maybe not exactly comparable, but I'm just asking, what do you think of the work of art argument? Not much, right? (laughs) They're not very good works of art. No, I I, I don't know that it matters, you know, if, if it's offensive because it's telling a history that's distorted. It should not be on public land where I have to support it. Take it down, put it in a museum. And I might go there and learn a few things, but I don't want it on public. The head of the uh, new Civil War Museum at Tredegar, Mm -hmm. who is an African-American woman, Mm -hmm. said she doesn't want any of those statues (laughs) from the fan district in her museum. (laughs) And her her two reasons were... um, I don't want to maintain them, she said. Our community doesn't really particularly want to maintain them. And two, she makes the argument that I made, which is, you know, the, the Lee statue is on a giant pedestal. They're gigantic, yeah. And if you put him down here, it's going to just look badly carved. Anyway, I'm just doing, listen, I was a museum guy, so I have to throw in the What about what they did in Hungary? Didn't they in Hungary have a park? They do. That's where a, they moved yeah. all these Soviet-era statues, Lenin, Stalin, whoever, into this kind of park. It's an outdoor park. If you want to see those statues as, a, as historical artifacts, you can go there and look at them. But they're not, they're there in a particular context, right? And it's, it's, it's a, a different, gallery of villains. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, not a context them. where they're in front of the courthouse, you know? 
Well, yeah. We Not a bad idea. Yeah, no. we can have something like that and call it our troubled history. Mm-hmm. And, and just have people there to explain it. Yet the problem is we're still in denial about our past. And until we are willing to embrace that past... I don't think anything's going to change. There is a little bit going on now, as you know. I yeah. mean, Edna's completely right, of course, that the real issue is what we think about our past, not whether this statue or that statue mm-hmm. is appropriate. It is encouraging that, for example, as you know, the lynching museum opened mm-hmm. up in, um, in Alabama recently. Mm-hmm. There are alternative visions of the past now being erected in, in mm-hmm. public space, which is an important thing. And so it's, or the civil rights museums in, in uh, Birmingham and other parts of the South. So the, it hasn't really gone to the statuary yet, but, it, but certainly public history in the South is beginning to change in, in significant ways. A lot of textbooks have to be revised, right, to include... Uh... Yeah, textbooks aren't that bad anymore. I think many of them have been revised. Uh, they're very different from they were 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> Except or... for Virginia. <laughs> Except for, right. <laughs> well, Texas is not Texas exactly... True. All right. <laughs> Obviously, they haven't gotten your textbook yet. In those... He's a big textbook writer, so he's... Uh, yeah, my textbook is uh, totally accurate. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the interpretations, we're not sure. Right. Um, yeah, it's called, I, I, it's called Memento... Park in Budapest. Uh-huh. Okay. So that is exactly um, what you were talking about. Um, in Gettysburg, which Edna and I go to at least once a year for the Lincoln Forum, and Eric has been, um, they are petrified that someone is going to come along, because it's a national park, and object to the fact that half of the park's 1,300 statues are of Confederates, maybe more than half. Um, It's an actual site of a battle. Does that rank as an exception because these people fought there? You know, let me just say one thing about Gettysburg, because, as you know, I worked very closely there on the new visitor center they built and everything. Until around the year 2000 or so, there was no statue of James Longstreet, Lee's right-hand man in Gettysburg. And in fact, the guy who told him, hey, don't I, do don't, that. Yeah. I don't think Vickers George is a great idea. <laughs> right. um, but um, it's each state determines which of their uh, soldiers and generals and everything gets put up in Gettysburg. Um, why was Longstreet not there? Was he a lousy general? He was no better or worse than all the other generals. It was because after the Civil War, Longstreet became a Republican in Louisiana. He became the head of the Metropolitan Police who fought the Klan in the Battle of Liberty Place, and he supported the rights of black people. That made him persona non grata for the powers that be in Louisiana who determined who should be memorialized. That had nothing to do with the Civil War, exactly. It had to do with his support for the rights of black people. So, you know, that's... Now, eventually, John Latchaw, who was from Virginia and has a very good Southern accent, so he could explain this to the Sons of the Confederacy, said, I'm putting a statue of Longstreet up. I don't care what Louisiana says anymore. This is history. He was here. He was important. Now there is a statue of Longstreet. But it took 
oh, a century and a half from the Civil War to get a statue of Lawton Street. He also there. fought back against the Lee canonization movement. Right. And, uh, but, I mean, that shows you... Well, we're not just talking about heritage. We're talking about political power. Right. We're talking about racial attitudes. We're talking about many things embodied in these statues. And we have to think about all of them if, if we're trying to figure out whether they're appropriate or not. So... In my uncomfortable position as devil's advocate, I'm going to make one other, just a point. I don't necessarily You're going to quote Trump it. again. <laughs> no, you quoted Trump. So in Annapolis, at the Annapolis courthouse, there had long been a statue of Chief Justice Roger Tawney, the racist slave-holding justice who wrote the majority opinion that said that people of color could never be citizens and famous Dred Scott, the infamous Dred Scott decision. So it stood there for generations, or sat there, I think it was seated. Um, About 25 years ago, uh, a statue was erected right around the corner in the State House of Thurgood Marshall, also from Maryland, and also the, the last laugh on Roger Tawney. Not only obviously a citizen, but a member of the United States Supreme Court, the first person of color on the Supreme Court. Now, Tawney is gone, and Thurgood Marshall is there. But have we lost something about how history has progressed, how attitudes changed, and how people were welcomed by by a measure of their uh, ability? Is the context, is the comparison important? Or is it better to have Tawny gone? <laughs> but would people even recognize that a comparison is taking place? Wouldn't there have to be some context there? I don't know that having Tawny there and then having Marshall there as well, people would actually make the connection that we've come a long way. Um, I, for one, would prefer that he not be there. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like Tawny. <laughs> Just right. vile person, but uh, I, I think we do. You know, although context is not going to make a difference with some people, we do have to try to educate the, the American people. I think we just we're not reading enough, we're not listening enough. We're going to have to let our children know what the true history is. What bothers me about the United Daughters of the Confederacy is that they're not just protecting these Confederate uh, memorials. They actually have a youth group, and they're teaching these children this Mm -hmm. history of the South. And so these children are growing up believing in the lost cause even today. So that is a problem, and I think it's those kinds of things that have to change. You know, speaking of Tawny, and she, there was one African-American member of a state Supreme Court during Reconstruction, Jonathan J. Wright in South Carolina. Until, again, around 2000, 2001, in South Carolina, in the Supreme Court building, they have portraits of every single justice who ever served on the Supreme Court of South Carolina, going back to the colonial era, one after another after another, except for one. Yes. There was no portrait of Jonathan J. Wright. Now, was this an oversight? They forgot about Jonathan J. Wright? No, this is my point about power. We don't want anyone to see that there was a black justice on our Supreme Court. Well, times did change. In 2000, 
Ernest Finney, a black man, became chief justice of the Supreme Court of South Carolina. He ordered a portrait made. He had a big ceremony to put up the portrait. So now the historical record there is more complete, let's say. But it, again, look at how long it took and look at, you know, this, this business of erasing people from history uh, is, you know, affected, you know, the entire, the entire black population of South Carolina, which at the time of Reconstruction was a majority of the population. So, you know, it's, it's not just about history and heritage. I want to ask one more question from, my, from me, and then I have some questions from the audience. And please, if you haven't submitted your question, please, please do so. Um, so Senator Booker from New Jersey uh, was preparing last year, this may be before he turned his attentions to potentially running for president, but his, his, his idea is to ban... Um, Confederate statues from the United States Capitol. Uh, I, I showed an image of the evolving tributes in Statuary Hall. Statuary Hall is a serious thing. It, it's, it took a long time for a woman to be, or a person of color to be honored in Statuary Hall. I know the overflow is now in the visitor center, but Statuary Hall, the old United States House of Representatives, where John Quincy Adams had a stroke arguing about mm-hmm. um, abolition. Um, it's a pretty sacred space for this, our secular sacred space. I- I'm offended that Jefferson Davis is there, for one. I've always been. Mississippi chose it. We give each state a right uh, to choose. I'm for the Booker Bill, if it ever comes to that. So <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. No one who fought against union, the nation should be honored in that hall. It, it's as simple as that. I, I don't yeah. see that. Mm-hmm. Oh, we've got some good questions here. This first one is deeply insulting, but it's very relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Can you speak to the role the lack of diversity among historians plays into memorials and statues? Say that again. The lack of Diversity, Diversity among historians. historians. Yes. How has that created the, 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 the disjointed state of memorialization? So the suggestion is that there are fewer people of color and of other... Who have directed the conversation. Actually... Yeah. Well, the historical profession, like many features of our society, was fundamentally a segregated thing for a long, long time. There were the African-American colleges who had very good historians, some of them. Howard, for example, had a great history department. But, um, Still does, by the way. Right. <laughs> You're right. That is absolutely right. But most of them now are there by choice rather than yes, being absolutely. necessity, so to speak. That, but no, that, that's of course a good point. But Yes, I think that's a good, absolutely. The, 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 now the historical profession, there are far more African-Americans, there are far more women, there are far more, you know, it's a much more diverse group of people writing the history of the United States now, and that has changed our view of many, many things. Uh, not just Civil War, but the history of women was barely written about uh, 50 years ago. Uh, now it is. 
So, yes, the lack of diversity of the historical profession was an import, was very important in allowing a certain view of this history to become dominant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, this this is a this is a, like an automatic thumbs up question, but someone has very um, intelligently pointed out um, what a lovely statue of Frederick Douglass adorns the uh, the side <laughs> entrance of the New York Historical yes. Society. Um, so they're asking what we think about it. We all love it, right? Absolutely. What do we think of Frederick that, Douglass? No, the statue, the statue. of Frederick. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of people take pictures next to it. Yes, of Lincoln and Douglass. Absolutely, it's a it's this. It's interesting why, who chose Frederick Douglass. I have no idea. But Frederick Douglass didn't actually have a heck of a lot to do with New York City, really. Well, neither did Lincoln, except passing through. <laughs> it's too... Lincoln gave his... Well, of course, Frederick Douglass Frederick spoke, Douglass Cooper, spoke Union Cooper Union, too. Union too. Right. right. Okay. Exactly. So, got out of that one nicely. Here's an interesting question. Um, what type of memorial for the Civil War would you like to see built? Presumably one that doesn't exist. <laughs> hmm. What kind of memorial? Shall I go first? I don't know. I mean, I, I love the yeah. Robert Gould Shaw Memorial, well, but it course, focuses on one. the white colonel. I think your point in the beginning when you referred to your ancient op-ed piece is that there is not enough recognition of the African-American troops mm-hmm. and the you know, fact that they turned the war around. And that might be the kind of memorialization we could I'd use. like to see a different emancipation statue yes. than the one you showed uh, here, you know, a little with the African-American having a little more agency, so to yeah, speak. absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I would think uh, one that commemorates the role that African-American women played during that period. We hear all of this discussion about the 200,000 black men who served, but there were black women doing some interesting things during that period as well for the union cause. And I don't know that there's anything that's been erected. I'm very happy to say that um, New York State is putting up a statue of Harriet Tubman. Oh, good. Where? In Auburn or? Yeah, in Auburn. So there's a whole new series of statues of women that are going up under the current state historian's aegis. Um, a Susan B. Anthony, upstate, Harriet Tubman, one other. Yeah, but... But, but I, I was thinking maybe ordinary mm-hmm. black women who are not, you know, who are working behind the scenes, who are serving as nurses, um, who are in these, these contraband camps, who are doing all of these things that never get any recognition. So, like, yeah, the soldiers have a memorial. Harriet Tubman has been memorialized to death. I mean, in terms of you know all of the I mean, all of the, the the attention that she gets. Yeah. But what about all of these other common mm-hmm. women who whose names we don't know, but were instrumental in the cause? Did you pick a favorite? You know, I'm actually, I would, I'm more interested in getting memorials to Reconstruction around. Nothing wrong with the Civil War, but I think it's, that is such a gap in the public history and also in people's consciousness of American history. Well, Hiram Revels in Mississippi would be nice. 
Is there a statue of no. Hiram? No. The first African-American member of the U.S. Senate, no statue of him out of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. No. As I said, there's virtually nothing memorializing Reconstruction anywhere in the country. And I think that is a giant uh, gap. Um, an interesting question here. How did the North's memorialization of the war differ from the South's? What themes and imagery were most prominent? And were Northern women as active in the memorial movement as Southern women were? I mean, the Northern movement was, you know, in large measure tributes to Lincoln and Grant and to generals according to the states. I mean, there were But every, every town has a, a statue of a Civil War soldier, an yeah. ordinary one. Aside from the generic soldier. Yeah. There's Meade in Pennsylvania. There's right. uh, uh, Burnside in Rhode mm-hmm. Island. Yeah, I, I guess my, my question is, why has the North seemingly accepted the Southern story? And so why would you find a statue or a bust of a Confederate leader in New York or in Iowa? Mm-hmm. I mean, why is it that the North has almost given the South the, the, you know, the opportunity to argue that their cause was so just? The NYU Hall of Fame. You know, I was just doing some research on the Hall of Fame for, um, for my Daniel Chester French book. It was a big deal once. It was like the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah. If you were elected to the Hall of Fame, there was a major ceremony. You got a bust, a bronze bust installed. And Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were elected to the Hall of Fame at NYU uptown. It's now Hostos, a CUNY campus. Um, that's one explanation. I, you know, I was taught that Robert E. Lee was just was a great guy. You know, a, a gallant, noble cavalier. Maybe fighting in the wrong cause. I mean, it wasn't even certain. This goes back a long way, but this is New York. You know, the, in terms of Civil War memorialization in the North, the one thing there are thousands of statues related to the Civil War, and what, but the number that putting St. Gordon's aside on Boston Common. Less than a dozen show a black soldier. You know, there is, I think we said this before, there is virtually no memorialization mm-hmm. of the black men, 180,000 or so, who fought on the side of the Union in the Civil War. So those, you know, but in terms of this, you know, David Blight's book, of course, Race and Reunion and others, the, the North's acquiescence in the rise of Jim Crow and the, and the you know, that whole system was reflected in a new, a different view of history. I mean, you know, birth of a nation. They, you know, that that became sort of a, a commonly accepted view for a long, long time. Loved in the North. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, promoted by the president of the United States, yes. who was mm-hmm. allegedly from New Jersey, um, <laughs> but really from the South. So just to add to that, I'm going to cover this here on February 12th, but... The Lincoln Memorial was a shrine to sectional, not racial, reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, very much dedicated to, you know, all of the states, including southern states, with a dedication ceremony that was hellishly and brutally segregated, and um, and um, was insulting to the one speaker of color. Uh, Robert Russell Moton, the head of the Tuskegee Institute. So 
I'm going to ask one more quick question because I see the microphone looming, meaning you're going to have your, um, your epilogue from Alex in a minute. This is really not a fair question, but let's put on our historian's thinking cap and not do this politically, but what contemporary leader will inspire a statue? <laughs> not my question. <laughs> audience has a right. Too soon to tell. That's the historian's well, I, I, answer. I don't think so. I think Barack Obama will inspire statues. First African-American right. president. Mm-hmm. She has not surfaced yet. <laughs> I like that. Did you all hear? Yeah, what she did you has say? not surfaced yet. <laughs> Good. You know, it, Why this, didn't you say Michelle Obama? <laughs> just a run. Um, as I said, we had the same discussion 10 months ago for a small group here at the New York Historical Society. I, I was, I'm really glad that we got to do it again for all of you. But it's extraordinary how different this discussion is from the one we had in April. I think we've, we've all had time to think more about this. I don't think the evolution of, of thought is complete. I think this is going to have several more permutations. Statues have been toppled since we first met. Not enough new statues have been commissioned. But I think what's ex- one thing that's extraordinary is that in this era, when images are so promiscuous and available, I mean it that way, when we can you know, get hundreds of images on our iPhones and computers every day, not to mention television, these larger-than-life enthroned um, or equestrian figures still evoke a, a very deep and passionate response. So I think we've affirmed today that we all have a responsibility to evaluate what's in the public sphere, and not only for our own emotional response, but for what we're teaching. And these are two great teachers who we thank very much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.